0: Use code JACK250 to get $250 off to the Blockworks Digital Asset Summit. It's in New York in September and ticket prices are only going up. Link is in the description. It is my pleasure to welcome Jeffrey Sherman, Chief Investment Officer of Doubleline Capital. Jeffrey, great to have you on Forward Guidance.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Jack.
0: Jeffrey you uh, are the chief investment officer for a very large fund that invests in mostly fixed income stuff, so bonds, some mortgages, that kind of stuff. You also do equities. So I, I want to pick your brain. You know, There are two sort of principal risks that I, I think uh, fixed income investors face, that is credit risk and interest rate risk. Now, I could give sort of the textbook definition for our viewers, but how about, how about you give your definition? How do you view these two risks and which do you think is a greater risk at this point
1: in time? Yeah, I think you really distilled the fixed income market down to its principal components. I mean, uh, that's really what it is. Um, you know, w- whenever you enter into, you know, or you lend someone money, um, you obviously have to charge them uh, a rate that's commensurate with their creditworthiness. Right. But there also just needs to be a base rate of interest as well, which we call the interest rate risk component. Uh, There's times where interest rate risk and credit risk are positively correlated, but in a lot of the cycles, they tend to be negatively correlated. And so we've lived in a world really for the last 20 years or so coming into 2022, where roughly, you know, you've had this really strong negative correlation between the interest rate component and the credit component. And inherently, that makes some sense, right? Um, If you think about, you know, when the economy is doing well, you have a Fed or, you know, interest rate policy should be pushing upward, right? You have growth, um, you have, you know, potentially some levels of inflation. And that means interest rates potentially should push higher. Um, And in that environment, you know, probably, you know, there's money going around and people are looking for opportunities. And so the creditworthiness people don't, um, you know, they think about a good economy And so they don't require a significant incremental spread for that credit risk. And so um, that's why spreads tend to be, you know, the spread on on credit products tend to be relatively negatively correlated. But there's also inflection points. And I think, you know, what's different about the cycle and now, you know, I said 20 years going to 2022, but it really should be 20 years going to 2020 because when interest rates get extremely low, or at least low relative to the levels of inflation, um, you can have a big repricing of markets. And especially when you have negative interest rates, which we'd seen in Europe for many years now, uh, we had very low interest rates in this, this country. The tenure got to this lowest level, you know, kind of ever uh, that we've seen, you know, at least in the modern post-World War II era. And when you come off low levels, you know, the tenure and in, in August of 2020 got down to about 50 basis points. And you know, if you think about the repricing from 50 basis points and you put a credit spread on it, it's like, okay, well, you know, if that's the risk-free rate of money, great. Um, you know, so we put a spread on it. So, you know, corporate bonds should maybe yield 2%, you know, risky corporate bonds should maybe yield 4%. It's that spread to that 50 basis points. However, you know, once you get a repricing and people have woke up to that in 2022, where you go from a very low level of interest rates and all of a sudden now the risk-free rate or, you know, kind of the 10 year treasure I'm using here, it's not risk-free. It has interest rate risk in it, but it gets repriced like 3%. Well, do I still want to lend to a corporation at 2%? The answer is no, right? And so in that instance, it's like, okay, now 3 is a level I can get with really just locking my money up with the government. Um, So does that tight incremental spread or the credit spread make sense? And so that's what you've seen this year um, in in, uh, the financial markets is that you've had both the credit risk and the interest rate risk Really reset in the markets, and so you've had this period of what we call you know positive correlation between spreads and interest rates, and this is you know there's many cases of this throughout history. Um, It's just over the long term through cycles they tend to be normal normally uh, negatively correlated, Um, but in the '90s, in the mid '90s, and and you and I are probably a little too young for this, uh, but we're all students of history, right? But in the mid '90s. Um, bonds were horrific on this in the same kind of components. So that's why a lot of people compare this environment to something like 1994, because there was a big move from the Federal Reserve, and they were trying to, you know, kind of slow down the economy, they were trying to fight some levels of inflation. And so I'd say 2022 rhymes with that period. Now, what you also saw in that period is that, you know, stocks did bad, bonds bid bad, huh, 2022, right? Um, and so what it is, it's that resetting of kind of what the equilibrium rate of interest rates should be. So that's, that's the history. That's kind of the textbook and, and using some anecdotal evidence. But to answer your true question on which one's bigger today, I think we're at the point where they're relatively balanced. And that's because you've seen the FOMC, you've seen the Fed come out and say that at this stage, they're around the neutral rate. Um, the problem is inflation's high. And as we're recording this podcast today, right, we got the latest inflation print. It surprised a little bit to the downside. Um, it's not that much to the downside, but the market is really welcoming it, right? Because it's the first time we've had something to celebrate about. Uh, we're celebrating an 8.5% year over year rate now, but in March, the 8.5% rate, we hated it, right? So, it's, it's funny how markets work that way. The, the path is what matters. And so, uh, as you think about it, the, the Fed's going to continue to be somewhat aggressive. Um, they're going to continue to hike through this. So, the market kind of knows that, it's looking through that, um, but also I think the the credit component does have some risk today. But the thing about the credit risk is that spreads have widened out to a, a level across most sectors of the bond market that are commensurate with that risk out there. And so the bond market has been pricing in the higher inflation rate, and by extension, potentially a slowdown. Um, there's a lot of talk of recession, um, you know, in the last couple of months. I think some of that talk is cooled. I know your bears out there will continue to say. uh, I don't believe we're currently in a recession. I mean, you can't print 500,000 jobs in a month and tell me that the labor market's challenged right now, plus wage growth and those likes. So I think the the risks are relatively balanced. So what that means is, as someone who's trying to construct a portfolio, I think you want to own both of those risks, right? I think you want to use them and you understand that, yeah, if rates move up, let's say another 100 basis points, spreads will come under pressure. But at this level now, you're buying assets to where they have enough yield. Yield within them that you can stomach some of that price volatility. So said differently, and one thing that you know we, we've talked about a lot at Double Line is what you can compare the yield relative to the duration. Right. And so it's kind of like a way of thinking about a sharp ratio. So if you think about a sharp ratio, it's the return divided by the risk. And again, duration doesn't encompass all the risks. But if I think about forward looking return, yield is one place to start. You can penalize it for defaults and things like that. Um, you can put on your interest rate expectation. But yield is kind of what you get if you hold to maturity and doesn't default and then you can divide it by the duration. And today in the market, you're finding that there's a better balance of that. And so what I like to say is when yields are high, you can make a lot of price mistakes and you don't see it as much. Do you care if a bond has a bid offer of 20 basis points when it yields 10, or do you care a lot when it yields one, right? So there's a big difference in that. And so I think right now the risks are relatively balanced because I think we're in a slowdown. I'm well. We all know we're in a slowdown. I just don't think the recession risk is imminent right now. And the consumer's Relatively resilient. So, from my standpoint, you know, thinking about the asset allocation, we've been a little biased to credit risk as of late because, you know, they got so cheap, right? It got to levels where you said, okay, we've got to start nibbling, we've got to start buying. And if you look at something like a core fixed income strategy that we run, we're going to have about 60% of that portfolio in credit risk, but we're still going to have the other 40% balanced out in some of that interest rate sensitive sectors, things like. Governments and agency mortgages. So I think right now it's prudent to be you know, cautious in some of that credit risk. But I want to own both sides of the equation today because I think those risks are relatively balanced. Now, if they're balanced, why isn't it 50-50? It's because of that excess yield component we see out there. Plus, I think the market got too bearish on the recession risk. Right. Thanks for that.
0: So interest rate risk is the base layer, which is sensitive to the Fed on the short end and the long end, the 10-year inflation and growth expectations. And then the credit spread is, oh, how much is the market charging Amazon to borrow? How much is it charging ExxonMobil to borrow? Jeffrey, would it so now they're balanced, interest rate risk and credit risk. Would it be fair to say that the uh, drawdowns in fixed income market that has been very noticeable over the past seven months, would most of that have been due to interest rate risk rather than credit risk? or Or is it... Your balance as well.
1: Well, it's kind of both, unfortunately. And so, if you use something like the Bloomberg U.S. Aggregate, it's an investment-grade-only portfolio. So, it really has three key components. It has um, the government securities, treasuries. There's some agency debentures in there. It's called it governments. Uh, you have agency mortgages. So, think the housing market, the government-guaranteed housing market, and investment-grade corporate bonds. And if you think about this year, I'm going to call it the tale of two halves. Um, and I'm going to call it the half. The first half of the year had the tail of two halves. The first three months was really driven by the duration. It was driven by the interest rate sensitivity and things like bank loans delivered roughly a, a flat deposit return in the first quarter. Things like CLOs that are floating rate, things that didn't have duration performed quite well. High yield hung in there. It, weigh, it significantly outperformed investment grade because it had half the duration. Then we got to the second quarter, the fears of the slowdown came in, and all of a sudden, credit risks became the problem. And so uh, that's why I say it's a tale of two halves. So, is that balanced? Well, yeah, if you look at it throughout the course of the year, yes. But if you're living in the market, it wasn't throughout the course of the year, right? On a forward-looking basis, and again, that's how we have to think. We can't be rear-view mirror investors. You have to think about what the opportunity set looks like. And look, if I talk about the the treasury market, you know, depending on where you want to buy on the curve, you can get something like, let's call it high twos, 3%. Let's just round it to three. Um, And if you look at some of the credit markets, especially if you're willing to take some calculated risk, um, you know, IG is probably about uh, in the high fours. Today, you can call it mid fours. Um, you talk about high yield. High yield's really rallied a lot lately. I think high yield's a little ahead of itself. I think it's it just had this really big big flow of money. I think a lot of investors dump money in the ETF market there, um, and you've seen that from the flow data. Yes. But but that that one, you know, it yields you know roughly seven percent today. Uh, you can go into pockets of you know bank loans. You can get six to seven percent uh, emerging market debt if you're willing to go in the risky sector, the below investor grade. It yields north of 10 today. So there are places to seek opportunity, but you need to be very calculated. I don't think this is a beta market in credit, meaning that I don't think you just naively buy it. And I I know I just talked about high yield, and I think that's been a beta trade. Right. And, but I think you want to own more idiosyncratic things because I think that the next four months are still going to be challenging. The market's celebrating the inflation print today. Oh, Jay's going to be happy. Jay is Jay Powell going to be happy. You know, they're going to slow down their hiking path. I'm not convinced of that. And secondly, by the way, next month they ratchet up the quantitative tightening. So their policy is to tighten. And I think there's one thing that I observed in the last two weeks, Jack, that I think is very important for your listeners, is that the market interpreted the FOMC meeting two weeks ago as extremely dovish, right? Because Jay said they're near new, you know, they're, they're probably around neutral. You know, that's been unusual hikes. We won't be as unusual. We could be, but you know, the market interpreted that as being. Somewhat dovish, and you know you, you could read it a little bit, but it wasn't that dovish. It was neutral at best. Uh, there were some hawkish things because, like, we'll still fight inflation. Rates rallied pretty significantly over the next three days, or including the the FOMC day and the rest of that week. All of a sudden, you had the two year down like 2.75, tens got to like 2.52, um, and guess what happened? Fed governors came out of the woodwork. Right. They came out. Mary Daly, who's not usually out there. You know, she's a centrist and somewhat, you know, does very hawkish rhetoric. You had someone like uh, uh, Mester. uh, She came out and she's like, Mm -hmm. "Uh, we may have to go above four. So all of a sudden, you know, what you saw there is that the bond market was flying in the face of the Fed's objective. Remember, the Fed is trying to tighten policy by the market bidding rates so well and bringing rates down. All of a sudden now, you've got an easing of conditions. Spreads are coming in, rates are coming down, and the the Fed said, wait a second, this is not what we want. So I think you've got to be very careful on some of these rate rallies. You've got to watch the Fed governors come out and jawbone, and they're jawboning because they want tighter policy. They're still hiking rates. They That's a tightening of policy. They're going to ratchet up the QE next month. That's a tighter policy, and which that means there should be QT, more volatility. Sorry, yeah. Yeah, QT, yeah, QT is quantitative tightening yeah. And so um, we're, we've started that. they do 45 billion or they're targeting 45 billion a month right now I've uh, unwinded the balance sheet and it goes to 90, I'm sorry, it's 47 and a half. it goes to 95 billion starting next month. So things don't get easier in the financial markets. And so I think we're just in a choppy environment until inflation gets gets contained. I think we're somewhat rage bound, but I think the front of the curve is a little dangerous. Now people got excited about you know I can buy one year T bills at 320. This looks great, but also I think the Fed gets there pretty quickly, Um, and the market price is in kind of the the by early next year we're at three and a half on Fed funds rate. So, you know, does that sound like a great trade? Well, it's not bad. Uh, Inflation's probably going to curtail itself in the next couple of years. But so a two year treasury at 320. Yeah, you you can see that. But there's also risk to that, because if the Fed pushes higher, the two year probably needs to be closer to 4 percent than the low threes it's at today. So I just think that we're not out of the woods on that. But also, you know, so you you take that then you say, okay, what does that imply about tens? Well, um, historically you know the, the twos10 spread when it inverts you know if you look at kind of some of the recessions you know like in the uh, the tech tech crisis in the 2000s you know t- 10 has got to about minus 50 I think it's minus 52 or something we got close to that yesterday we're at minus 40 today but I think that's roughly where we yeah. go it's minus 50 so that means it brings the whole curve with it maybe because of the inflation fighting the the market thinks it's more transitory and ultimately, maybe it goes to 70. But, you know, if we're talking to 375, that still says the tenure should be north of three. So we'll have to see. Um, that's why I like to have a balanced portfolio right now. But also with some of this risk rally, we're kind of fading a little bit of it and kind of getting rid of a little bit of that credit risk at the margin. Jeffrey, there's this perception
0: out there in the market that the stock market, you know, that's a bunch of speculators. Apple goes from 140 to 150. All these stocks go up and down for no rhyme or reason. But the bond market, that is a sanctuary for scholars. And the bond market is a truth. The bond market can s- snuff out f- uh, future economic uh, uh, conditions so that, you know, with the yield curve inverts, that's a sign that a recession is on the horizon. And the track record is, is actually quite good. How much faith or or how much credence do you give the bond market? You know, when the yield curve is inverted... Is that something, surely something you pay attention to, but is it something that you say, oh, the bond market is telling me something, or do you just view it as there's buyers and there's sellers and this is what the price is?
1: Yeah, uh, well, it's always the latter, buyers and sellers, and that's the price. Um, and I like that you you think we're a bunch of scholars in the bond market. So uh, I'll, I'll tell my mom about that. She'll be very happy that I work with a bunch of scholars. Um, but ultimately, it's a forecasting mechanism, you say. And y- you kind of point out the euro dollar futures curve and you know the path of interest rates and if you look at the forecasting error of the bond market on the path of interest rates via both the Fed as well as forecasting exactly where the 10-year is or anything, it's pretty poor. It's about about as good as forecasting earnings in in the stock market. So guess what? It all boils down to we're human. We're trying to make a sense of a very noisy economic system. It's a multivariate universe. So we want to distill down to a univariate uh, kind of analysis. And so, I think, you know, when I I think about what the bond market's telling us today, the inverted curve says that there's economic trouble on the horizon. You never dismiss it. Never dismiss it. Doesn't mean that it's imminent. And what's, uh, you know, what a lot of people miss in this is that usually when the recession starts, the yield curve is steepening. Right. So that's contrary to what we just talked about. The inversion of the curve signals a recession. But by the time we get to the recession, the curve is steepening. Why? It's forward looking, just like stocks bottom in the you know early in the recession. They don't bottom at the end of the recession, typically. And again, it's a forward looking mechanism. So my concern today is not that the twos, tens is inverted. I think it's inverted for a good reason. Uh, it's inverted because the Fed is going to go above neutral. And the bond market is nervous that going above neutral and fighting this inflation is going to slow economic growth. And therefore, you know, the, the, you have that kind of recession risk somewhat priced in. So I think at this level, the, the key you want to look for is the steeping of the curve. When twos tens goes positive again, that's not a good sign. Historically, that's the bad sign where you're mired in the recession. And so. You know, I, I don't I, you know, again, I think the forecasting mechanism of the bond markets is similar to any other thing. It's very difficult to do. But, you know, it is driven by macroeconomic data. So the way I think about kind of what I'll call the three core markets of investing, right, stocks, bonds, commodities, I, I like to think of stocks as the forward looking mechanism. Right. I think of bonds as kind of the contemporaneous. You want to know what the where the economy is? Look at the tenure. Right, that's the old adage, right? That it should trade on kind of forward-looking, you know, kind of where we are on nominal GDP in general. I know nominal GDP is sniffly higher than than the ten-year, but that's kind of it's a contemporaneous market. And commodities are backward-looking, right? There, that's where the inflation started. So I kind of think of those three time horizons across those markets. But in general, uh, I don't think the bond market's any better than than the others. But uh, I do take uh, credence in you calling me a scholar since we work in that. <laughs> Yeah, well, you you are a scholar, Jeffrey. So the bond market steepens
0: uh, once you're actually in a recession, and most of the time, correct me if I'm wrong, that is a bull steeper. That is short-term rates are collapsing because the market is pricing in the, the, the Fed uh, yep. cutting drastically. But if the Fed does not cut drastically, that that won't happen. And also, you're you're absolutely right that the two ten yield curve inversion is extremely forward-looking, something like you know twelve eighteen months. So. Uh, the, if the yield curve inversion entered, you know, if the cur- 210 uh, inversion, if 210 spread entered inversion earlier this year, that did not mean that we were in a recession in April of 2022. It meant maybe there will be a recession in April 2023
1: or later. Right, and also you got to think about the environment. And so in this environment, you know, we're talking about inflation fighting. The Fed So they're going to go have to go above neutral. Um, will they recant or will the other part of the market catch up to it? And, and that's to be seen. It's, it's how well can the economy st- stomach these higher rates? And so, you know, corporate America did a phenomenal job in 2020 and early 21 of refinancing the balance sheets, right? So you now have this term financing, it's longer out. And so, even if we are, or, or let's say we tip into a recession in 23, I don't think the default cycle is going to be deep. Right. Because, again, you don't have these big maturity walls. There's all this refinancing activity that has to be done at the same time. And by the way, it doesn't have to be done in 2023. So, you know, maybe with higher rates, we take out some of these zombie companies, things that shouldn't have been that shouldn't have survived and survived significantly on low rates. But also a lot of people forget that, you know, the Fed has engineered soft landings in the past. And I'll actually say the last hiking cycle was kind of a soft landing. Right. If you think about it, they hiked in all, all the way going into 2018. Um, they started to cut in 2019 uh, because they saw signs of things slowing down. Uh, also, they stopped their quantitative tightening uh, because they were really destroying some markets with that. They were really sucking liquidity out of the system. And so they were really able to engineer that. Now, you can say, well, we did have a recession, um, but it was also a pandemic-driven recession. So maybe we would have had the recession and the Fed would have had you know, this, this track record that they're, you know, it tends to be biased to them having hard landings and putting this in there. But really, you know, uh, if, if the Fed is calculated with this, and again, if rates are 350, that's where the market's pricing, as you said, for January, February of next year, they've got 350 to cut. Right. So you can do it quite quickly if they've seen signs of cracking. So will they do that? Inflation has to come down. Right. I don't think that they start cutting rates unless the inflationary environment changes in a meaningful manner. And we do think it comes down. The bond market thinks it comes down. So if that's the case, maybe that maybe the, the price in the Euro dollar curve is right. Or maybe we can just keep those rates at that level for a time being, let the economy work things through and you'll get the steep in the curve, but it doesn't give you the recession. So again, uh, I, it's always dangerous to say this time is different, but there are a unique set of factors here. And my bigger concern would be that ultimately they continue to do quantitative tightening. They suck too much liquidity out of the system. And that causes challenges for the global economy. So um, as I said, you know, we like to distill it down to one variable, two's, tens tell us this, but it is a multivariate universe.
0: And how are you, do you assess liquidity conditions? Maybe you can go back during quantitative easing in 2020 and 2021 when it was noted that liquidity was ample and, you know, deals could get done, uh, prob- you know, spreads, bid-ask spreads were narrow. You know, I'm, you know every now and then I buy stocks, but I don't really trade bonds. So I don't know, you know, Apple bid 140 and ask 140 and one penny. But you know, in the much more illiquid fixed income universe, that's where liquidity and particularly quantitative easing comes into play. Describe the conditions of the ample liquidity of over the past two years. And to what degree are you seeing uh, liquidity come away from the market? You know, bid spreads widening, or do you have another metric that you measure liquidity by? And to what degree do you attribute that to the Fed rate hikes QT?
1: Yeah, no, it's it's good to make the distinction on a penny wide on on a on a common stock versus a, a bond because uh, no no bonds trade a penny wide even treasuries and so I'll take you through a little history of liquidity over the last couple of years and you know um, you know we have we have traders and portfolio managers that have been doing this since the '80s right um, and so that's the '87 crash I mean they have a lot of the '94 experience they have they have a lot of experience of watching markets and the liquidity in March of 2020 was the worst in any of our team's careers. And that goes for Jeffrey Gunlock, that goes for everybody on the team. Um, You know, folks, uh, we had one guy that actually uh, was running money back in the late 70s, Um, and so, what you see in that market is it free? It froze up massively. Treasuries, which typically trade, we call it a tick wide. That's the trading block of it, um, and they usually trade about a tick wide or, or one one thirty second, one sixty fourth, depending on market. Um, so they're very tight in general. And what you found is things that were off the run securities wouldn't even trade. So you're talking about the nine and a half year Treasury won't trade uh, because no one wants to trade it. Um, and if it did, it was four points wide. Right. So you're talking pennies in the market. We're talking about percentages uh, on the most what's perceived to be the most liquid part of the market. So there was a problem. There was a massive problem in the market. Some of this has to do with regulation. Some of this has to do with dealer balance sheets. Dealers not wanting to take risks. Also has to do with everybody on one side of trade. Everybody was selling, selling anything you can sell your house, sell your kids, sell whatever you can sell. We got to raise the money right now. Um, and, and so that was a very dire situation. There's a reason the fed cut quickly. They stepped in now the way they did it. You know, we can argue the legalities of it. Should they have bought corporate bonds? I mean, investors now think that the fed, the next time there's a problem, they're going to buy corporate bonds. Um, we hear that from institutional investors. Um, uh, we, we have a client that told us that, well, why should I buy this other stuff? The fed just going to support this. And this is like last week they said that. Um, so, uh, why I point that out is that liquidity conditions have changed over time. The less propensity to risk, some of its regulation out there, um, and dealers never have stepped in in crisis. So, so that that's kind of a bad example. But you mentioned the ample liquidity flooding the market with with newfound cash, buying securities, driving rates down. You know the the spending spree that you know the fiscal authorities did, and look, they gave it to corporate America. You know we, we all harp on the inflation coming through. You know the consumer and oh the free money, no one wants to work. You know um, there's those old sayings there. But But we sent it through corporate America. That's where the handouts really were. And, you know, it it supported the system. Now, liquidity conditions have dried up again. They're they're not 2020 levels. Liquidity has been pretty poor this year. But that's what happens in a one direction market, especially when it's selling. And so what what I've witnessed in, in the market this year is that you have fixed income selling, you have equity selling. There's not a lot of buying right there hasn't been i mean now in this last rally you've seen some flows come back a little bit and so it's like well where's the money going is it going to cash i think it's going to spending i think people are doing the the revenge travel you know you hear about you know they're going out and spending money and they're saying look i've been cooped up for a couple of years so that's not tenable in the long run but that's actually what's supporting our economy right now So how do I why did I bring that up? Well, I think that liquidity has been somewhat poor because it's a one direction market. And when it's a one direction market, no one wants to be on the other side of that. Right. And so you you need two way flow for liquidity to come back. And, you know, when we talk about liquidity, I'm also talking about financial conditions. And so the bid offer spread was was wider probably than uh, comparing today to let's say two months ago. Bid offer was significantly wider a couple months ago, um, because again you're seeing two way flow into the market. But again, you know if we're talking about a bond, if it's half a point wide and it has an eighty dollar price, who cares, right? You know the, the yield to maturity on a five year bond, if it's a half a point, it's ten bips. Like it doesn't really matter, right? And, and over over a, over a period of time. So ultimately, I think that the liquidity isn't there because the money isn't there. Right. And then you have the feds going to tighten on the other side about, you know, essentially putting more supply of securities into the marketplace. So that just creates competition. Right. So if the Fed is and the, the, the Fed's not really selling securities. Right. They roll off the balance sheet, their treasuries, they roll yeah. off. Right. So they mature, which means the government has to refinance them because we don't have any money. Right. We borrow money. So to pay down the treasury, we issue a new security. But the Fed doesn't buy it. So it's new supply into the marketplace. So supply and demand demand remains constant. You know, supply should be. Push the price down should push yields up, so I think part of that is liquidity. Is that there's uncertainty and that leads to these kind of bouts of illiquidity in the marketplace. And so um, nothing compares to 2020, um, but you're starting to see a little more two way flow in the market because you've seen some stabilization rates, you've seen stabilization in spreads, and usually you don't see a bottom until you get what we call a washout event. Usually you have a fun blow up or, you know, I thought maybe the crypto, some of these crypto cracks were some of those events, but it didn't seem to have a lot of pain in the marketplace. Usually markets bottom in in, in a recession at max pain. Think the Lehman events, you know, you know, think about how that trickled over. And so you haven't really seen that. So although this has been an ugly market, it's been somewhat orderly. Right. Um, But you couldn't you couldn't do size even if you wanted to buy it. You couldn't go out and buy, you know, 50 million blocks of bonds um, in most markets because it just wasn't there. And also no one wanted to sell it to you. Right. We're all saying, well, we like the yield. I don't want to go out and sell it. And we're forced to sell sometimes under that that condition. And so I think thematically you've seen fixed income managers also carry cash this year because. Again, we've all had redemptions. We all kind of think rates are kind of moving around. We think spreads need to move around, and so I think you're starting to see more balance in there. And so again, um, you know, we're seeing investors come back. Institutional investors are are trying to you know meet their targets more now with fixed income. And so in general, I think liquidity is okay. Um, but again, you know, high yield bonds never trade a penny wide. You know, they never will. <laughs> it's just one of those markets. So uh, I guess never is a, a dangerous thing to say, but. So, uh, I'm worried about the Fed's liquidity impacting rates, and that's trickling over in the other area. And we saw that the last time. And it's dollars getting shortage in the marketplace, right? That's what QT ultimately is. We flood the market with dollars in QE, and then it pulls back. And so, that pulling back is the access, really, to the dollar trade. So, that
0: shortage of dollars, the pulling back of liquidity, that reduces the supply of dollars, but what about the supply of assets? How many corporations are coming to market trying to issue a a high yield note, an investment grade note? I know that in uh, December 2018, uh, I've heard that what really caused the Powell pivot was the high yield bond market was frozen, not necessarily on the secondary market, but on issuing new paper. Uh, yeah, what does the days, sort of think was the new number. issue market look like?
1: Yeah, I think forty-seven yeah. days was the number uh, during that period, and I'm still not convinced that's why the Powell pivot existed. See, when 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 Jay Powell was was promoted to be the Fed chairman, he was lauded for his attention to credit markets. He's a credit guy. That's what you hear. He looks at spreads. He talks to you know the corporate leaders, and so he should have saw those signs earlier. Right. So the idea that he said the, the balance sheet's on automatic pilot, um, you know, damn the torpedoes full speed ahead, um, you know, with this policy, um, I think it actually took him meeting with Bernanke and Yellen, you know, the first week of January. I think that's where the pivot took place. I'm not convinced it was actually the the, the bomber because those signs were there. Uh, the high yield market froze a few weeks ago. Right. And again, we got that's kind of where the lows were again. Right. There's no issuance. Uh, this happens when you get big moves in 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 rates or just borrowing costs. Right. It can be rate driven or spread driven. So we saw that good news is, Jack, the high yield markets open on new issue again. Right. And so you're going to go through these periods. Some of our seasonal, um, you know, there's other pockets like securitized credit where, you know, just deals get done at certain times of the year as well. So um, I, I do Credit Jay Powell for navigating this environment. Um, He he gets a lot of criticism. We've been fed critics. I think he's done a good job this year. I mean, think about it. When Yellen first raised rates back in 2016, right? And then we got to the end of that hiking cycle. They got to roughly where we are today. And it took them almost four years. It took them, I'm sorry, three years uh, to get there. We did that in like four months, Five months, right? From the hiking cycle from, from May to now. It's like five months. So I mean, give them, give the man some credit. I mean, he had the fortitude to push forward with this. And we've gotten to around neutral much quicker than we did in other other cycles. So I, I think he deserves credit. He's learned how to talk at the press conference. You know, one of these things, you gotta learn on the fly of the job. I couldn't be the Fed chairman. I'm gonna say something stupid up there too, right? So you know, it, it's that thing. And people don't parse my words. Everything that man said is yeah. overly scrutinized, right? So I think he's learned on the job. He's doing a good job. Look, they're in uncharted territory. He did a make culpa as well. I think that's what the market liked as well. He did that make culpa and say, ultimately, you know, we were wrong on inflation. The humility is important here, right? Because it's we've seen the hubris of the bankers saying they can do this for the last 12 years, that we're masters of the universe. We know the best. And- I think that there's a lot to be said about that. So as, as you look at, you know, the the policies, it's not just, you know, the interest rate policy. We rely heavily on forward guidance today. And Jay pulling that back to me saying there is no forward guidance. The market celebrated because like, OK, we're not on a set path. That's good. But also they removed the forward guidance. They're not exactly telling you what they're going to do. Right. So there should be a little more volatility in the market. And that's also Warrants when there's volatility, it's higher bid offer spread too. To bring back to the last question,
0: right? And do you are are you? I know that they they were doing forward guidance. That was very apparent. That was influencing forward rates, and that was allowing the Federal Reserve to tighten monetary policy much more than just pulling the lever of Fed funds rate because you can't you know pull. Fed funds up 200 basis points in a single meeting. Well, now they're can. saying that they're other not doing banks do it, forward Jack, guidance. Jack,
1: other banks do it. They're just called emerging markets, but yeah. other banks do it, you know? Fair.
0: Yeah. Fair. A, an excellent point. Uh, yeah. yeah. The, the Fed does not do that. So they're saying they're not doing forward guidance. And yet the consensus about where the Fed funds rate is going to be in December remains, you know, pretty centered around that three, 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 five basis point. So, is, is there sort of soft forward guidance where they're, they're saying they're not doing forward guidance? But, you know, it's, it's not as if, you know, people are betting that the, they're going to cut rates to zero by December, right?
1: Yeah, no, that's a fair point. I, I think soft forward guidance. I, I haven't heard that phrase, so I'll, I'll credit you if I if I pill for that that phrase. But um, I, I think it is kind of soft forward guidance. I think you're right there. But, you know, you, you said I'm going to come back to that, they don't hike 200 basis points. And we had a, a you know, we had our investment team meeting and I'm talking to all the heads of the various areas. And we We're talking about Fed policy. This was in March, and you know, they, they went the whopping 25 basis points. And, um, you know, our treasury uh, portfolio manager, who, who's been doing this for you know almost 40 years now, he was he said, Man, 25, you know, and then we got the 50, and he was like, Man, you know, Greenspan would have just done 100 intra meeting, and he freaked out our younger staff, right? Younger staff being you know, people in their 30s and 40s, right? Like, what do you mean? They don't remember that kind of stuff, right? And the Fed used to just hike. There was no such thing. You would sit on a trading desk. Again, this is before my day, but you'd sit on a trading desk. There's a squawk box. It's like the Federal Reserve just moved interest rates up 75 basis points. Everybody's like, What? What just happened? It just comes out of some speaker. Right. So we, we have yeah. set because our dependence on, you know, the, the central banks over the last you know probably three decades, uh, we got used to it and we've edged in this direction. And I think really why forward guidance became important was that I credit Mario Draghi for this back. I think it was in 14 where he said, we're going to do whatever it takes. And he did nothing. But he said, we're going to do whatever it takes. And that brought confidence into the market. The the Fed, or I'm sorry, in that case, the ECB has our back. And right now, I don't think the Fed has your back. The Fed telling you they want to fight inflation. They're going to slow things down. They're going to tighten financial conditions. And they don't care if you go into recession. So that's why, you know, people question the Fed put, where is it at these days? And you know, I think the Fed would definitely pivot if the S&P broke 3,500, right? There's just a pain level. There's a pain threshold where corporate America, the CEOs are going to go complain, right? And that's what actually helps foreign policy as well. Don't forget, Jay Powell does not make these decisions in a vacuum. He samples, he surveys, he has dinner with all these people. He figures out what's going on in the economy. And so I, I think forward guidance is a good thing. And, you know, again, they're going to be data dependent. But guess what? At the next Fed meeting... If the SEPs, this this, uh, statement of economic projections comes out and all of a sudden they have a 2023 rate of four and a quarter is the kind of median rate. You think the bond market's going to not puke that day? It's absolutely going to. So that's why I'm a little cautious on this next Fed meeting, too, because I hear four. I keep hearing four from a lot of people. Um, A lot of Fed governors are talking about four. And you're telling me the market's priced in three and a half. Seems that the market's a little too optimistic on the pivot. And again, the economic data has been strong. Yes, GDP was weak. Consumption inside of there was, was positive. And people will rail me for that. Well, the rest of it was negative. Doesn't matter. This is a big economy. The jobs market has been strong. Household survey, the established report, very strong jobs numbers. Wage growth is there. The the job composition was higher in wages. I mean, it's hard to to really say that we can't take this interest rate level. Now, the bad news, Jack, is that monetary policy operates with the lag. So these hikes that we've seen aren't necessarily in the economy completely yet. But, you know, at some point, you're going to pull you. You mentioned asset prices. Well, people will also say, you know what? Why do I need to take risks when my money market pays me three and a half? Right, that's also the plan of the Fed. Right, pull money away for that, make people save money and less speculation. So, um, I think that it's still going to be a challenge the rest of the year. I don't think we're out of the woods yet, and I just think you know there's going to be some trading opportunities out there in the marketplace. And you're seeing that. You're seeing emerging market debt still trading significantly wide relative to other markets. High yield is narrowed in pretty significantly, but some of the, like you know the commercial mortgage market, some of the residential mortgage market, they're still pretty wide. But also also, I think because we're in a lower liquidity environment with QT coming, I think spread should be wider. So, you know, we're, we're, that's what we're cautioning our, our folks internally. It's like, OK, these are the widest we've seen in a while, but should they be? And the answer is probably yes. So don't get too excited. But also, we got we to spend some of this money we have. And so there's there's very ways of doing that calculated yeah. risk today.
0: Jeffrey, so you say we have to spend some of that money you have, and that's a great point because you know individual investors, perhaps they're watching this podcast. They get bullish on high yield. They can buy HYG, the high yield ETF. They want to sell it. They can sell it. They want. They can short it. They can get you know ETF for mortgage-backed securities, liquid TLT, IEI, IEF. Pick your poison. They can do whatever they want, and also they can just have zero dollars in assets and one hundred percent be one hundred percent in cash and not really pay a penalty for it. Jeffrey, I, I can't think of an you know an institution that is the more opposite of that than your firm, Double Line, which has an enormous amount of assets. You can't just hold everything in cash, right?
1: You you have to no, put I money to work. I wish we would have. I wish you, we would have I mean, now, right? We'd have been much better <laughs> off, right? Um, but you know, clients don't pay you for that. We're, we're risk takers, right? At the end of the day, we're paid to take to take that that risk, and so you either like it or you don't. And if you don't like it, sell it. It's the same thing you said with all of that stuff, and so. Our job is to try to invest through a cycle. And look, we've carried elevated levels of cash, but not enough, right? You know, the cash has been the best performing asset in the fixed income market year to date. So um, it it is a challenge. You know, what I think is like now the market is a very good opportunity. And so um, I think you're going to see some cash come back to fixed income markets, which you mentioned, like the TLTs, the HYGs, that's where the flow's been. And so someone asked me recently, isn't the market neurotic? They're buying long-duration treasuries and they're buying corporate, you know, junk junk bonds, right? And I said, it's not a bad trade. You're betting on the economy and you're betting against the economy at the same time. And they're both positive carry, right? I earn on the long bond. I earn on this side. Yeah. But also, the long bond can go down 20%, right? It did this year, right? So, that's the risk to that. But, you know, yeah. own some. And so, you have to put it all together. So, so, so when
0: you said 20%, down in the long bond, that's obviously not the 20% rate, that's a, the price is down 20%. I think on TLT or some of those zero coupon ETFs, I think it's more like yeah. 35% max drawdown. Yeah. Obviously now it's, yeah. it's it's rallied significantly. Yeah. What is your, let's say 95% confidence level uh, for the 30-year treasury bond, which has sold off tremendously, rallied over the past yeah. month. Um, You know, what a, a, obviously a 6% 30-year treasury would surprise you, but 5%,
1: a 4.5%? Um, Yeah, it's okay. Next 12 months, my 95% confidence interval is between one and four. (laughs) And I said 1% Mm -hmm. and 4% because I think it could be that wild, right? And so then you say, well, that's not even a forecast. I agree with you. It's not. Um, I don't think it goes above four. But if the world collapses, if the US economy collapses, we could go test that 1% level again. So Now, give me that range, you know, I think the probability is very low we get to one, but you want a 95% confidence, that's what I got to get to. Um, But I I think, you know, the long bond probably should trade a little bit higher than it is today. Um, There's been a lot of buying of it because it's perceived to be the risk-off asset. I mean price higher. So yield lower is what I'm talking about in the risk-off environment. Yeah, I, I may have said that wrong. Price higher, yield lower, you can make money on it. If the, if the long bond goes down, yields go down to 2% from the 3% level today, with the duration on that asset, you should make north of 20%. That's a very attractive return. I think people would call that equity-like returns, right? So when we put together the portfolios that we've been doing and we, we get the credit we want, we look at the interest rate exposure we want, but we want to have a little bit more duration in the portfolio, we've actually been buying the long bond this year right? Because it has that chance of the risk off. So I I said we have this kind of 60% in credit, 40% more rate sensitive, but that rate sensitivity is kind of longer duration. So my key rate duration is longer to speak wonky like a bond nerd. Um, but, it also has more bang for the buck if something happens. So, you know, when you look at the asset allocation at times, people don't understand that sometimes, you know, you'll have severe credit risk. So if I have significant credit risk, the way to offset that is that that kind of long bond or, you know, if you do it yourself, it's the TLT. So to me, the TLT HYG trade makes sense um, because it's like I'm betting both kind of ways and spreads are good. But how do I offset that now? Maybe it shouldn't be 50 50. Right? You want to manage how much key rate duration you have. So uh, I'm not against the long bond at this point. In fact, as I said, we've kind of used that to lengthen the portfolio. So even though our duration shortened the market, we probably own a little more key rate duration longer because I think the front of the curve is dangerous still. I think the I think the the market could be mispricing the Fed's behavior, and we've seen the volatility. Now. Look at the two year Treasury; it was like two seventy five, you know, two weeks ago or like a week and a half ago, and now we, you know we got to three twenty yesterday. It's rallied to three ten. It's volatile. And again, the duration is not long. It has about a 1.9 year duration. It's or maybe it's one, 1.85. So you're not going to get really killed on those rate moves. But also, that's the Fed policy. And so the back end has kind of been a lot more stable. Um, and so, again, uh, probably the, the real range is, is probably between two and three and a half. I'll tighten that in a little bit um, You know, on, on the 95% confidence interval. But I think if we hit a recession, I think you're going to see the, the long bond get close to 2%. So you see the risk that the long bond continues to sell
0: off as a relatively remote possibility to you know four and a half five percent because of inflation.
1: No, I don't. I don't think it yeah, pushes yeah. up to four and a half five. I think if it does, it's going to take a couple of years. I think it's that we got through this this hiking cycle. The inflation's a bit more persistent. You know we live in a you know a three and a half four percent inflation world. If we do that for a long enough period of time, the long bond will reset. Right. It it trades more nominal GDP over the long term. So, um, you know, again, I I think that it it would take a period of time. That's why in a 12 month period, I think it has to be condensed somewhat because I I just the the bond market doesn't believe that this inflation rate is is sustainable, Um, which I agree with. But I also think we're going into a higher um, inflation era. We lived in a world of two. I think the three is the new two for inflation. And we'll we'll have to suss this out, you know, over time. But I think you've seen wage growth. Labor's had a very powerful hand in this in this cycle, right? Think about your recording, you know, your podcast from where it is. We do this remote, it's a hybrid world. Sometimes we're in the office, sometimes we're not. Um, and so labor has an upper hand. If you want to hire people today in, in finance, unless you're you're sitting in, in midtown Manhattan or downtown or midtown Manhattan. There's a lot of flexibility in that. If you want to hire someone, they want flexibility. Labor has the upper hand. And typically when labor and labor hasn't had the upper hand for a while, right? Capital's had the upper hand. It's just that push pull of labor and capital. And so the the big question is when the next recession comes, does labor still have the power? And we'll have to see. But given the employment situation, I think labor still has power, which means we still have wage pressure, which means we probably have a higher inflation rate than really what the bond market is signaling right now. Um, and so again, I think that means that that back end could move up. Uh, but again, there's the recession risk. So that pulls pulls yields back down. That's why it's a push and pull. Growth pulls rates down, right? Because it's gonna be slower and then inflation pushes rates back up. And that's why I think you're seeing kind of, people call it the neuroses of the market, but I think there's a lot of, uh, of credence to what's happening there.
0: Jeffrey, a lot of the uh, assets assets that double line is, is interested in is in the mortgage market that's both uh, guaranteed by Fannie Mae as well as the non-agency not guaranteed. What's your outlook on the mortgage back market and what are also the the risks and opportunities? Like what would have to happen for those investments to go very well? What would they have to do for you to you know, experience losses?
1: Yeah, also- um, well, the agency financing is still the bulk of the financing for the mortgage market in, in America. So for all the criticism that the that congress gives the fed about buying agency mortgages on their balance sheet they didn't buy agency mortgages in this cycle to support the housing market they bought agency mortgages cuz they didn't want to own so much of the treasury market right they have a seven you know they have a high 7 trillion dollar balance sheet Right. If you bought that, that's roughly, you know, 35% of the outstanding the treasury market. So, what they were trying to do was buy interest rate sensitive assets. And, you know, the Ginny Mays are explicitly guaranteed, and the Fannie and the Freddies have the quasi. So, they were trying to stay within that mandate and manage the interest rate component. And so, they've always done it at a two to one ratio, always being, you know, QE and QE2, QE3, and what the last round we did. Um, so, The idea that they've supported the housing market, I think, is a fallacy. Now, back in 08, they did support the housing market by doing so because it was broken, right? There was no lending in the private markets. No one wanted to underwrite credit. So they needed to get some sense in there. So they were buying these quasi-government-guaranteed and government-guaranteed assets to essentially drive down rates in general, right? They weren't out there saying, we want house prices up. Right. And that's what you'll hear out of Congress. Like you created this housing bubble. Now, there is some truth to it because some of the housing strength is because of low interest rates. But I don't believe it's because they owned agency mortgages. So the the system is still heavily financed by the agency side. So, again, what that means is that it just goes through those, those uh, through those government entities. Now, when you think about the risk there, really the, the risk you have in today's market, um, if you buy securities that trade at a discount, there's not a lot of risk there. And why is it a discount? Because if you buy bonds at a premium and they prepay too much, you get paid back at par, that can hurt your return. But now you have coupon, you have carry. Uh, a lot of these securities will trade at a discount, Right? So prepays are good. You buy something at 95, you, all your amortization comes in at 100. That's a good thing. Um, and so they're they're on a, a hold to maturity basis. They don't have a lot of risk. Um, they have interest rate sensitivity. Yes, the prepayment speeds can move back and forth. So the agency market, what happened is that this year the agency market got pretty cheap it was extremely rich one year ago and we got to our lowest weight in agency mortgages that we had because it was rich because banks were flushed with cash when i say banks I think the investment banks and they need to buy high quality assets they were flooding the mortgage markets that spread relative to the treasuries the spreads the option adjusted spread yes. got like in let's call it 30 basis points and that's historically very tight today that same oas the option adjusted spread is like 150 Why is it so high if it's a government-guaranteed asset? There was the perception in the marketplace, you know, at the beginning of this year, and a lot of strategists talked about it, that the Fed was going to sell mortgages. So if you sell mortgages, again, supply demand, right, should drive the yields higher. And so what you've seen in that market is that spreads are pretty wide today. The problem that, you know, we have is that you also, they're interest rate sensitive. So, do you want to add duration today? And, you know, when we see in these spreads, we like the spread. We think they're attractive, but, you know, they're, we, we want a little higher yield environment to get into. So... There's something very beautiful about that market today, the way it's set up. That it's hard to, you know, mark to market. You can lose money, but you know, again, it's money good. We think over the cycle. Now, again, people don't stick with these a whole cycle, so you got to manage the mark to market, as we all know. Um, the non-agency side, on the other hand, right. And just a question. So,
0: in, uh, s- s- sorry, just on the interest rate sensitive. So, a Treasury ten-year Treasury. The interest rate sensitivity is pretty simple. If interest rates rise, the ten-year Treasury price will go down. If interest rates fall, the 10-year treasury price will go up. However, it's a little more complicated with mortgages, right? Because if, yeah. ex- explain that. If interest rates go up, refinancing people, people don't refinance. So the ex- it's complicated. As you can tell, I don't get it. It's very complicated. It?
1: And, and, and as you just said, people don't refinance. That's not true. Some people do refinance. Some people have a life event. They need some cash. So they're going to refinance. The house is worth a lot more. You can cash out a little bit sometimes. Um, also, people move. Right. There's also what we call the three D's of, of the housing market. There's death, destruction and divorce. Right. They cause you to sell an asset. Right. And so um, you sell the asset, you pay off the mortgage. Right. So that's a prepayment. So it is complicated. But at the end of it, you can just think of it as like it, it's an interest rate sensitive asset. Um, you know, you've got to manage what we call the convexity of it. Just that's the how those prepayments move up and down. And, you know, a lot of those mortgages are out of the money. They're not going to just be naturally refied because people save money. You're going to need the three D's to kind of kick in. Plus attrition. There's also the migration of the housing market. That is one thing that people forget about. As long as the housing, I'm sorry, the job market is robust, people move. They change locales. They leave my home state yeah. of California and they go to Texas, they go to Florida, they pay off their mortgage, they buy a new one. So that is a prepayment as well. And then some people, you know, they just say, hey, I don't want to have this debt. I'm going to make an extra payment on my mortgage. Right. So there's always some level of prepayments they, they historically have never went to zero. Um, and so, again, It's complicated, but it's one of those markets that you can, if you know how to analyze it, you know how to look through it, you know how to pair it with different types of securities in there, you can do pretty well through a cycle and you can outperform the treasury market. But you mentioned the non-agency market, and and that's an interesting market because right now the non-agency market is, is, and these are not guaranteed. So the bondholder takes the default risk. But if you look at that market today, and let's say originations, or or let's say securitizations that have come in the last few months. There, those loans were seasoned 6, 9, 12 months before you put them in a securitization pool. What's happened in housing in the last 6, 9, 12 months? Hmm, I think prices are up a little bit, right? If you look at the Case-Shiller data, it tells you 20%. So you have this embedded kind of gain in there that you can take prices resetting down, and it's okay. The other thing is, is that if you bought their structures— and so you don't have to buy; you don't have to be exposed to the whole thing. You can be buying senior tranches, triple A-rated stuff that is really triple A today, right? The underwriting's good on the mortgages. There's documentation, and someone else supports that structure in the loss. And those securities today, triple A loans, some of them yield like 5.5%, five and a half percent. Five, today they're probably about like closer to five after this 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 rally we've seen. These these securities, by the way. Back in December, got to 2%. We, t- we took a buyer strike. We said, We're not buying anything sub two, two and an eighths. We don't like. Uh, I think someone tried to do a deal at like one and in, one in seven eighths. Uh, I don't know if that cleared or not, um, but that was absolutely the low there. But look, they're strengthening um, the securities. Most of them will get refied in two to three years. And so they're not long life either. But this, when the problem, Jack, is that it's keyed off the two year part of the curve. So that's been the volatile part of the curve. That's what repriced. And so these mortgages, the reason they've they've widened out like that is because it's the two-year treasury that's driven a lot of that. And then again, that whole idea that spreads were too tight, they need to widen out. So they're very attractive today. Um, But also, you don't have to just bet on housing. You can sprinkle this with some asset backs, Um, things like, you know, uh, consumer loans, franchise loans. um, You know, you can even go into infrastructure related product, energy. So there's all these different things in the securitized world um, that do have a complexity premium. You have to understand structure. You have to understand credit underwriting. But when you start to look at this, you don't just have to make this beta trade. You know, So our credit risk today, we own very little EMD. We, we own some emerging market debt. Um, we own a little bit of high yield. Okay. We've been selling that down a little bit. We own some bank loans. We've been selling that a little bit, just kind of at the margin right? Um, we own investor-grade corporate bonds. We own more than we've owned previously. But also, we have exposure to the commercial real estate market, exposure to the residential mortgage market, we have exposure to the CLO market. And we also have exposure to these ABS structures. So when I think about my credit book across these products— right? Our portfolio managers, are, we have a. We are spreading our credit exposure around. And that's what you're supposed to do in markets where there's not massive dislocations. Now, I think there's a dislocation in EMD today, emerging market debt. However, I think it's warranted, right? I think the liquidity can be a problem as we go on the year. I think there's global macro risk, there's China risk, right? So that's why we haven't stepped back into that trade at this point. And look, in some of the stuff in our riskier products where we've owned it, it's like, Look, the underwriting—you know—look, these these bonds now yield twenty. So even if they default, not all of them are going to default. If half of them default and we get zero recovery, which usually gets something, it's still a ten return. It's kind of hard to lose there, right? So you've already wrote it down in some of those instances. So you know, let's let's just kind of see that. Now, do you want to add here? Probably not. You want to be more calculated because you want to try to get that ten that you know you can get the ten, right? And. And so I think as you think about the credit markets, you know, we love to have more diverse credit exposures. Now, credit's credit. When it widens, it widens. But if I can get different bets in different parts of the economy, I just don't have this myopic narrow trade. And so that, that's what we're thinking about today. So you said that you were
0: uh, underweight on bank loans or starting to sell off bank loans. I think that you were – you had you did have a lot of bank loans and bank loans are – unique, not unique, but they're special in that they are, they have no interest rate risk, right? It's SOFR plus two,
1: LIBOR plus three, right? Or or not always. Well, they they typically are floating rate, as you're pointing out. Um, They have interest rate risk, but it's it's usually very short, right? Because they reset quarterly. And so most people think of them as having a quarter of a year duration, which in the grand scheme of things, what we're talking about is benign interest rate risk. They have spread risk. Right, yep. they have spread duration, as we yes. call it. Um, so even though they have no interest rate duration, they have spread duration, and that's if spreads go out two hundred basis points, it's a five-year kind of deal. You're gonna you're gonna lose, you know, a, a duration of like five times the spread there too. So that's how you can be down ten percent in bank loans is that spread reprices as well. Um, but the other thing about bank loans is remember, in a rising rate environment, they're great for investors. But the company itself yes. has to pay that loan at a higher rate. So now you've got to think about margin compression. you got to think about who has pricing power in that space. We know that there's labor and wage pressure. We know costs. You've seen the employment cost index. Um, you know Benefits are costing more. So if you think about that, you want to identify companies that can withstand that. So again, we're not investing in equities where that margin is the most important thing, but you want to have a margin of safety, right? Can they withstand the storm? What can they do? What does the facility look like? What other assets do they have? And they tend to be senior in the capital structure. So, um, you know, this is a part of the market that people loved because of the rising rate environment. But also, when the economy looked like it was slowing significantly and there was a recession risk, they pulled back.
0: Jeff, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, you. You are on my podcast, Forward Guidance, but you have your own podcast, The Sherman Show, which you had a lot of really interesting interviews with fascinating guests. And I'm actually a little bit, I have podcast jealousy, Jeffrey, because you recently (laughs) interviewed Zoltan Pozar, who I've been been trying to get on my podcast for a while. So I definitely uh, recommend uh, folks check that out.
1: Yeah, the, I guess the, the advantage I have, I have a big firm and uh, we have a lot of relationships across firms. And so, uh, you know, the way we got Zoltan, it, was, it wasn't it was that I emailed him. It's that we used our bond traders and their sales guys that we know. I have a little okay. bit of advantage to you there, Jack, but uh, I like what the work you're doing. That's why I came on your show. So keep up the great work. And, you know, over time, you're going to get some of those great guests, too. And, um, you know, this may be a low point in your in your podcast cycle of having me on. So um, I appreciate the time you spent with no, me
0: today. No, no. This, this is a high point this is a high point jeffrey you are a real expert in, in fixed income and you know you there are a lot of people who they can they can sort of talk the talk for like four or five minutes about about macro but you know people who really are know the bond math and you know know it cold and you know are managing lots and lots of money uh that, that, those people are hard to get and uh, so i'm really glad that uh, i got the chance to talk to you
1: Thanks. It's a pleasure. And yeah, I guess we it's been an hour now. So uh, hopefully we still have people listening after all that wonky bond talk. So thanks again, Jack. I really enjoyed it and, and good luck to you guys. Cheers. Thanks, Jeffrey. There is something that you need
0: to be doing right now, and that is reading the BlockWorks Daily Newsletter. For top market insights and the latest in crypto news, you have to subscribe to the BlockWorks Daily Newsletter, and you can do so by clicking on the link in the description to this video or by visiting blockworks.co forward slash newsletter.